0: The ways in which so so often people think that the weight of productivity is just, you know, focus, 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 fatigue.
1: Thank you for joining us on Doorknob Comments, a podcast that we created to discuss all things involving mental health. We take the view that psychiatry is not just about the absence of illness, but rather the positive qualities, presence of health and strong relationships and all the wonderful things that make life worth living. I'm Dr. Farah White.
2: And I'm Dr. Grant Brenner. We're very, very happy to have friend and colleague, Dr. Srini Pillay here. Dr. Palay okay. is a Harvard-trained psychiatrist, brain imaging researcher, and author of the amazing book, Tinker, Dabble, Doodle, Try, Unlock the Power of the Unfocused Mind. He is globally recognized for translating complex findings from psychology and brain science research into practical suggestions to help people improve productivity, creativity, and self-connection. As CEO of NeuroBusiness Group, voted one of the top 20 movers and shakers in leadership development in the world, he works with nonprofits and Fortune 500 companies globally to help leaders understand how to change brain blood flow to manage risk, uncertainty, and volatility, and to harness creativity. He has founded three startups in the brain science technology space. He is an in-demand keynote speaker and widely sought after by the media. He has been featured on CNN, Oprah Radio, Fox TV, The New York Times, The Boston Globe, Forbes, and Fortune. He can be reached at Srini at neurobusinessgroup.com. That's S R I N I at neurobusinessgroup.com. Welcome, Srini. It's amazing to have you here.
0: It's really lovely to be here, Grant and Farah. Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah, thanks for joining us. Um, I'm really looking forward to hearing about your book and about any other projects that you have in the works. (laughs)
0: Absolutely. I'm happy to start wherever you'd like me to start.
1: I'd like to start with the inspiration, really, um, where this sort of came from and, and how, you've, how it's been for you to see this to fruition.
0: Yeah, I, the book actually came from a discussion with my agent who asked me what I wanted to write about. And I told her that I didn't know. And so she said, well, why don't you just speak for like 30 minutes on like everything, anything you want to speak about, continuously stream of consciousness and let's see what happens. And maybe we can start with what you're doing. And so I started to say, well, you know, I'm I'm a psychiatrist, a clinical psychiatrist. I've done brain imaging research. I'm also an executive coach where I use brain-based coaching. I'm working on this technology company, which is really exciting. At the time, I was working on a musical that I was trying to finish and also working on some poetry. So she was like, and you're getting stuff done? And I said, yeah. She said, well, maybe like, is there anything you can say that's interesting about the fact that you can be doing many things at the same time and still be productive? Because we live in a world right now where everyone's preaching focus and preaching focus as a way to advance your life. Is it possible you could say something that may be counter narrative. I was happy to contribute to the counter narrative and that conversation evolved and eventually a Tinker Dabble Doodle Try uh, came out of that. And so the, the book is really a, a book about the ways in which so so often people um, think that the way to productivity is just, you know, focus 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 fatigue. Like most people I just schedule hour after hour, they're you know and if they they've got to-do lists and I've got to get stuff done. And a lot of that is, while it's useful, obviously, I mean, we all need to focus, uh, to really optimize focus, you have to manage your brain's fuel more effectively. And so really what I prescribe in this book is, is at a meta level going between the, front, the prefrontal cortex, which is involved in very focused activity, especially when it's connected to the sides of the brain uh, in the parietal lobe, um, and then another network that's responsible for a different kind of intelligence, which we used to think of as the do mostly nothing network, the DMN, but it's actually the default mode network. And this network is responsible for a lot of um, sort of interesting functions. Like, you know, so often, for example, people think that focus is well, the focus is the only thing that's helpful. But but focus can deplete the prefrontal cortex. And in fact, there's been a study, for example, that looked at People making moral decisions about trying to help other people. And they found that if you really focused in a video and compared to the group that didn't focus in the video, you were much less likely to care uh, unless somebody fed you glucose. Now, with everything that I'm saying, the one caveat is more studies need to be done and there's no final idea. I mean, these are just yeah. studies. Yeah, I thought are... you
2: were sort of anti science nowadays. <laughs> uh, no. Isn't that paradoxical <laughs> to be citing research and also to be questioning well... the validity of data? You can do that, but I think
1: overwhelming well, conflict of most doctors. Yeah,
0: yeah. I'm not. I don't think I would say I'm anti-science. That's a
1: little too. <laughs> I would say I'm anti-science.
2: <laughs> I I don't want to get I don't want to get in trouble. <laughs> I don't mean to be libelous or something.
0: It was it was William James I think who pointed out that uh, the nature of science is to perversely to live from destroying itself. Um, yeah. So I think the evolution of science has to do with looking at data and finding a better way over and over again. Mm
2: -hmm. People don't understand that fully, right? No, I think that's why people
0: say, like, you know, how can I believe you? Like, yesterday you said this was good. Today you're saying this is not good. And so people tend to think, well, that means that science is useless. But the reality is that... You can have science, you can have witchcraft, and you can have autocratic science and witchcraft. And then you can have what I, the kind of science that I would respect, which is science in continuous evolution questioning itself mm-hmm. and trying to improve on itself. And I think yeah. that's the type of science that I tried to include in this book. But, you know, aside from depleting the prefrontal cortex, focus is also problematic in many respects, right? If you think about the fact that focus really uh, keeps you to so focus on one particular point, And as a result, you can't, it, you, it's like you have these blinkers on, you can't really see what's happening in the periphery. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, if you're if you're really just focused on one thing, you can't really see what's coming up mm-hmm. ahead. Uh, focus is also, if you're focused, you're focused on one point. So with creativity, you often have to connect two or more ideas.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And, and the, the self-circuit in the brain, which is very extensive, but includes major components of the default mode network, uh, is also uh, requires a fair amount of unfocus, because the default mode network is one of those networks that can pick up information in the nooks and crannies of your brain, metaphorically, so that, you know, not just the overt things about you, like your LinkedIn profile or like the bio you read about me can be communicated, but also subtle things that actually matter to identity, like the scent of your grandmother or uh, what you think about the fall? You know things that are not necessarily that overt. So I I wanted right. to emphasize that I think that there's certainly a lot of examples in the world of people. Who have made major discoveries in their off moments? I think most of us mm-hmm. can relate to, like, you know, having ideas in the shower. And so I, I, just wanted to help people understand ways in which they could cultivate strategically building these unfocused periods into their lives. So that's the story of my inspiration and, and some of the major constructs that right. the book covers.
2: The diffuse meandering network, the Correct. default mode network. I, I was. I want to ask you about creativity. I was reading about personality and executive function and I'm, I'm suppressing the urge to ask you whether standing on one's head helps with blood <laughs> flow, but I had read that somewhat um, what's the word that book agents like for something which is uh, counterintuitive, that inhibition in- increases creativity. Inhibition is associated with divergent thinking because people inhibit the Routine ideas that are less original and more repetitive. um, Do you address that in Tinker, Dabble, Doodle, Try? Or how would you think about that for our listeners to leverage their own possibility? Well, I address it in in different
0: ways. I think one of the things is that people often think they're either creative or they're not, and there have been a, certainly a large number of studies that have well, have examined whether you the creativity has a genetic component, and there is a genetic component overall, but it's really not the dominant component. So I think most people would agree today that creativity can be developed. Then I think to your point, people often think that creativity has got to do with expressivity and really just like letting it all hang out. And the question is, is there a way in which that can interact with inhibition of certain things? And I think you do have to inhibit certain things, you know, the, like the the impulse to come across as normal, for example. I,
1: you know, I, I'm not, that not worried about that.
2: <laughs> yeah. I am very worried about that.
1: <laughs> the impulse or coming off as normal? What were you saying, Srini?
2: Okay. <laughs> so uh, self-control. Okay. Well, I, I think one
0: of the, uh, to your point, the, the the more recent studies of show people used to talk about right brain and left brain. And so the right brain was this free flowing part of the brain and the left brain was this very sort of focused brain. Mm-hmm. I think most experts in creativity in the brain would agree that you really need both sides of the brain to be able to do something. You need the part of the brain that is flowing, picking up ideas, making connections, and you need the part of the brain that is doing something with that. Otherwise, you, know, you might end up metaphorically with Picasso and no art. So someone who's super brilliant, but not able to put anything out there in some kind of time ordered sequence. So- There's a balance, yeah. There's a story of life, don't you think? That that so often this notion of balance, I think, is implicated in how you can best pull off something. I, I also think it's it's dynamic. So what feels <laughs> balanced to me is always, I think, self-checking against one's humanity and then also advancing. So I think balance as a metaphor is great, but I wouldn't want to communicate that you should be middle of the road and you should be a little bit of thinking and a little bit of flow and
1: Hmm.
0: uh, the amounts, I think, I'm not sure that that's key.
1: Oh, I wonder... From your point of view, because there is so much in the narrative about how to focus and how to just sort of optimize and execute and organize as a less focused person on the spectrum that those have been helpful to me. But when you're looking at someone who is really getting bogged down in execution or organization or those types of details, how do you have them relax and just, you know, get into that other neural network?
0: So I think there's this overarching framework that I will often describe to people, which okay. is I, I think you paradoxically have to be strategic about your unfocus. So you've got to be focused about okay. your unfocus. And I think what I'm saying is if we don't stop ourselves and we're ambitious people in the world, we're we're probably gonna just sit here all day and do something hour after hour. And mm-hmm. uh, what what I suggest to people is to is to consider the fact for that for close than close to 50% of the time, a little less, we're engaged in mind wandering anyway. So why wouldn't we build strategic unfocus in ways that have been shown to enhance brain function. You know, ideally I think most people, there's no absolute number on this and I definitely don't think there's any research pinpointing this number. Uh, but I think experientially, I, I would say uh, approximately 20 minutes, two to three times a day, set aside time for specific ways to unfocus. And and there are, there are ways in which you can do this depending on your work environment, depending on your own inclinations. I would suggest people try this and when they try this to actually see if it improves their lives or not over you know a period of 4 to 5 weeks mm-hmm. so napping for instance 5 to 15 minutes of napping can give you 1 to 3 hours of clarity which is you know mm-hmm. pretty good because a lot of times we're trying to push through the day and we're like oh my God, i got i just have oh, one more thing to do huge nap fan here and i i just think napping is a, is a much more efficient way of managing your brain fuel i mean you wouldn't go through you wouldn't go across country without filling any fuel in your car, why wouldn't you refuel your brain in the course of the day?
2: Sleep ref- refuels the brain. My dad used to call it, and he grew up in the Great Depression era, he used to call it Superman naps.
0: Yeah, because I think you actually do feel emboldened in that way, and you feel like you're a new person. I and, and in any case, there's always a time in the day when you're feeling like your brain is on low energy, right? It's like sometimes directly after lunch, middle of the afternoon, near the end of the day. So so napping is one of those things. Uh, there's a, a Doodling is a little bit controversial. So doodling can improve memory significantly, according to a study by Jackie Andrade. But recently, there's been a study on doodling showing that you probably have to doodle on the subject that's being discussed. So if you're on a conference call uh, about uh, what to do next in the strategy in the company, and you're doodling about apples and oranges, it's probably not that helpful. Um, what does
2: that do in the brain to doodle about the subject of interest? Do you think? I don't know, but I.
0: What I there are two things. One is that I think I think when you're doodling, uh, what you're doing is you're relaxing your attention, and so the brain is absorbing information metaphorically, not like a stiff sponge. It's it's actually just sort of letting information seep in. When you're doodling on the subject, you're probably also enhancing associative. Uh, function so that the ability to retain that information is greater. Uh, As far as I know, I don't think that mechanism has been studied.
2: I'm I'm thinking about some of those studies where they have people solve problems, and in one condition, they have to keep their arms still, and in the other condition, they just have people move their arms around. So I'm curious if you have thoughts about kind of the embodied cognition angle.
0: Yeah, I I do. I can't remember the specifics of this research, but my my memory, because I actually wrote about this in another one of my books, was that the way you move your hands actually matters. There are studies looking at moving your hands in circles versus straight lines when you're trying to solve a math problem. And and I do think that at a very literal level, cognition must be embodied because it's not like you have brain activation and then everything stops, right? I mean, there's a reason I can lift my hand up. If I can lift my hand up because I'm giving my hand an instruction, then when I am thinking something or trying to remember something, that memory often resides not just in my brain, but in my body. So I, I think I, I feel very strongly that, and I have noticed this a lot, you know, if I'm playing tennis, for example, um, and and how so often uh, it's the body memories that it's like a, it's like a feedback feed. It, it goes mm-hmm. back. It's like I remember something in my body and the way my body moved, and then I figure out where to move. So I do think that embodied cognition is a uh, is an important piece of this and so I
2: think I think doodling is a uh, is an important uh, way right there's this mirror neuron thing too when when you move the other person wants to move that way right I remember I did a risk communication training with uh, Vincent Cavello who studies a lot of risk communication right after 9-11 we had 100 people or more in the room and he started out saying you know, who here has ever felt stress when they're responding to a disaster? Raise your hand. And he raised his hand. And like, I had to raise my hand, even though I've never felt stress.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, learning neurons are very powerful. Isn't there a rap song that references that? Like, when you move, <laughs> when I move, you move just like that. <laughs> <laughs> Can you sing a little bit for us? The martini in hand. <laughs> <laughs> I told you, I can believe I can be shy sometimes. Well, I I remember where we are. So I'll go on to method number three. Method number one was napping. Method number two was doodling. Method number three three was was positive constructive daydreaming. Did you
1: say snacking? (laughs) Just thinking about things I like to do.
0: Yeah, oh, me too. I'm I'm a huge snacker. (laughs) Snack therapy. Snack a napper. Yes. Positive constructive daydreaming is a phenomenon that was studied for many years and uh, from the 1950s by Jerome Singer. And what Singer said was that if you just sit at your desk and daydream, it's not that helpful. Or if you're remembering the pionites indiscretions, you had too much to drink, it's also probably not that helpful. But what is helpful is positive constructive daydreaming. If I just summarize what that is, I'd say there's three basic things. First, set aside time approximately 20 minutes. Secondly, you have to be doing something low-key. So The classic examples are knitting or gardening or walking, uh, something that doesn't require a lot of energy, but that is embodied so that you are wandering with your body. And then the third thing is that while you're doing this, just let your mind go into positive, wishful thinking. So imagine running through the woods with your dog or flying on a yacht. By letting your mind sort of loose in that way, your mind just roams around um, and then collects this important information which can then be, which can often be put together. Like a lot of times with our focused minds, we collect very, sort of, you know, large information metaphorically, and the subtle, the the points are missing, so we can't really complete the story, or we can't have an aha moment. But when you're involved in positive, constructive daydreaming, you increase the chances of having an aha moment because the brain can put these puzzle pieces together. Because it finds these other little pieces and it's able to complete the story. So, you know, I think those are three methods in the book. I talk about many others, and happy to continue to talk about those methods if that'll be helpful.
1: I think this is so important, and it reminds me of a lot of the types of, I guess, different endeavors, like more mystical endeavors that that people embark upon. Um, and as a psychiatrist, I am sort of just like alongside that. But I wonder for you, you know it sounds like you're talking about a state of reverie, like this dreamlike state where people can really visualize what they want. Are there times when this, you know, positive, constructive, you know, daydreaming might, I don't know, bring them someplace that they didn't expect? And then how would we sort of reconcile that?
0: Yeah, so there's a a lot of uh, interesting, sometimes conflicting and disparate information on, on this. So for example, one way the question's asked is, You have mind-wandering, which sounds great, but what about mindfulness, which is focused attention on your breath? Uh, What's the difference? And I think uh, there's been one study that's shown that mindfulness is really good for analytical problem solving, and mind-wandering is good for creative problem solving. So maybe that's one framework we can think about. But mindfulness meditation... It's not just about staying focused on the breath or even in transcendental meditation on the word, because the focus takes you into an unfocused zone, which which most people would say is is a, a kind of transcendental space, where mm-hmm. you do encounter phenomena that are not available to ordinary consciousness. I do think that in the book, I, I talk about this a little bit. I, uh, my My editor wouldn't let me go too far with this. Okay. I don't find it that weird. Uh, that consciousness can evolve beyond a regular day-to-day consciousness. As I was saying to Grant recently when we met up, um, uh, 2021 is going to be a year for miracles and manifestation. And really what I think is that uh, there are ways to come to solving problems that are not linear or expectable. In the book, I talk about Carrie Banks Mullis, for example, who discovered a way of making synthetic DNA, PCR, you know, most his lab mates, hey, if you actually read online, what his lab, he got the Nobel Prize for this, and his lab mates were like, yeah, you know, he wasn't much of a scientist. <laughs> he didn't follow the scientific method, because the scientific method, of course, is the kind of method that uh, is very disheartening to most scientists, because most scientists never, ever get anywhere. So sometimes I wonder what's with the scientific method that doesn't get most people anywhere that they want to actually get to. But what he did was he he was, when he describes how he came upon this, he was driving from Berkeley to Mendocino. He was with his girlfriend. They had had a little bit of wine. They were going up these winding roads to a small log cabin type place. He suddenly stopped along the way, jumped out, started scribbling on a rock face. His girlfriend was tired. She didn't really want to talk. They went back to the log cabin. When he got there, you know, she was just relaxing. He just decided all of a sudden he had these realizations. And so his lab mates made it sound like it was luck. He said, you know, he just was not following the prescribed line of thinking. And I think most people would agree that the prescribed line of thinking may be the safe way of getting somewhere, but there are also ways of thinking that are associative, ways of thinking that are unconscious, ways of thinking that we don't immediately, we don't really understand that get people there. You know, Einstein when he talked about his theory of relativity, said it was a musical perception. It wasn't like he, he thought of something overt. So anyway, I think, you know, there are examples of this. Uh, you know, a lot of people ha- talk about the times that they took, when, that taking this time off was a way that they accessed this level of consciousness. You know, just by their very nature, miracles don't really, the criterion for, like what a miracle is, science is not really designed to authenticate. You know, science wants things that happen over and over again. Repeated uh, miracles are rare events. Science wants things that are Im- that are understandable, that you can explain. Miracles are things you can't explain. All you know with the miracle, uh, you know, like the Lord's miracles, these medical miracles, which people have documented for ages, are things, and scientists have been on these boards and they've seen that some people who are paralyzed became not paralyzed. There was a woman who presented with inflammation of the lining of the abdomen, who got completely cured. They got cured at different points. Nobody can explain how, but this happened. And I think if you asked a scientist, I think some people would say, well, when you have faith, what you have is you have a change in your brain chemistry. You're more motivated to get better. Dopamine, Uh, you also get a a decrease in some of the stress hormones. So maybe that plays a role in reversing what's going on. So certainly I, I think miracles are not built to be well understood by science, but they are fast phenomena. And I think a lot of people who made major discoveries feel very lucky. For not having kept themselves held by a noose to what the scientific method is. Mm-hmm. So the, the scientific method, I think, is a wonderful board from which one can jump into other states of consciousness. I think a lot of scientists would say, I got lost in the work. And it's and that's part of the joy of the science. The the lot, like logic, I think is very helpful to operationalize, to make, to set in order a, a lot of very difficult to articulate. Ideas, but I find logic not that helpful as a way to lead you into discovery. It's okay up to a point, but letting go to to me is is super important. And I think most humans are afraid to let go. I think you know I I ran an anxiety service for for many years uh, at McLean Hospital, and you know I started out thinking, oh, this is going to be like okay, not that bad. You know, SSRIs, a little bit of benzos. do some cognitive therapy, you would probably crack the code, people would feel better, and some people felt better, but I I think I ran into, for the long-term care, I ran into this notion uh, that I think made me think deeply about Kierkegaard's idea that anxiety is the dizziness of freedom, that we say we want to be free, but most people build lives so that they hold themselves to those lives with balls and chains, because not being what they call is grounded sometimes, but a lot of times it's trapped. And I think for us, it's important to ask ourselves, are we grounded or are we trapped? Um, you know, are we, are we, do we really want freedom or does being free make us feel like we don't have the gravity of our own consciousness to keep us connected? And I think the unfocused mind uh, and practicing these things allows us to navigate the space of freedom with less ambivalence so we can let go of our anxiety. In fact, one of my passions this week is uh, thinking more deeply about how I feel like we have been indoctrinated into believing that worry is necessary for success, that we got to get up in the morning and worry about the money, and worry about the day, and worry about what we haven't finished. Like worry is this kind of conditioning, uh, and I I'm even suspicious of of some of the systems we've set up to help us practice that. You know, go to school, do well, take an exam, make sure you're the top of your class. If you're not the top of your class, if you want to do something, interview. Like all of life is set up in the system of worry, and I I, I think that there's something that I would call the light that is far more attractive to grow in. And and I think worry as a habit is such a is such a strange addiction. I think a lot of the conflicts that are going on I, I think people have become addicted to conflict as an external way of of, of making them feel alive. Right. And so and so everyone's sort of taking sides on this or that, or this or the And, and it's just perpetuating this. I, I think if we pause for a moment and realize that our growth is actually stunted in these worry circles, very few people grow in those worry circles, that growing in what I'm calling the light can be, I think, much more advantageous. What I've want, been wanting to think about is how do you give up your attachment? to worry so that you can begin to embrace the light, just to go into the spiritual zone you were speaking about.
2: Right. Like analysts talk about binding anxiety with worry. And sometimes, you know, the the literature says that rumination is useful because, you know, you're mulling thoughts over like chewing and digesting and moving forward. Um, But I, I think a lot of times in our culture, we're conditioned to strive for these specific goals. And then, and then you get stuck in this mindset where, you know, that's kind of like the first stage of a rocket. Like once you finish your formal education, you should then be more open-minded, but, but the systems of learning train closed-mindedness. Yes, absolutely. And I, and I think, you know, it serves us to a large
0: extent. If you look at the research and worry, I think when, if, if you ask most worry researchers, why do people worry? I think one of the leading theories is the contrast avoidance theory, which is that in life you have peak experiences and you have these trough or valley experiences and warriors keep themselves in the middle because they don't want to go from falling in love to someone just died. The fall is too much. They'd rather go from, even if I am in love, let me just keep myself in this worry zone so the contrast is not as great. Like a status effect yeah and so when you do that you keep people you live your life in the middle zone and you never have these exceptional experiences because exceptional experiences are intimidating because they make you think that if something so because inevitably bad things happen and then you you end up falling like that you know it's sort of it's like a, and i think we practice this for a long time my association takes me to repetition compulsion and some of uh, Freud's initial observations of children, and uh, when people report this, I'm always amused by uh, how unamused they are by neurologists, child psychiatrists, not having a sense of humor, like the initial thoughts were, they were watching children playing in a cot, and they were like, this is like really weird behavior, they throw out the things that they own, like you wouldn't go to your house, and start throwing out your furniture, these are things they wanted, now they're throwing it out. But what's even weirder is that they cry about it after they throw it out. They're like, wait a minute, you threw it out. Now, why are you crying? Then the mother brings it back in these experiments and the child's really happy. And then the mother goes away and the, try, the child throws the toy out again. They are like, there's something weird about this behavior because yes, you can say the child's playing, but what's really striking about it is that there's something similar between the behavior of children and, and adult humans. And that is that that children... Uh, really, practice mastery over disappointment uh, rather than seeking fulfillment. And we want to be really good at life suck. Life sucking. You know, we want to be like, you know, what life's horrible, but I'm so good at it. I can, you know, hunker down and make this work. And. And I think we overemphasize the practice in mastering disappointment, uh, rather than thinking about ways in which seeking fulfillment uh, could also provide some of the light that yeah. I'm speaking.
2: About. Well, it's like risk management, Dr. White. You look like mm-hmm. you're vibing with something.
1: Yeah, I was. Uh, I was sort of wondering because there is a lot of talk of resilience, but it sounds like there are some important distinctions, right, between managing disappointment versus being resilient though, that maybe there is some overlap there. Risking disappointment. Like I'm willing to be
2: disappointed. You know, like I have mm-hmm. to fail in order to succeed. I can't avoid failure. I'll never get anywhere. Well,
0: the thing about emotions which is sort of interesting is that I think we live in a society where uh, being well-practiced at them is a skill. You know, like a lot of people will say things like, oh, my God. I'm like, Wait, is that a surprise or is that a phrase? Like, I'm, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not sure what that actually is uh, or that's so funny. It's like, it's so funny. Why are you not laughing? Like, we've cognitized a lot of different responses. Certainly, I, I learned something even in my, my mother just died a few years ago. And it was very <laughs> remarkable to me because I think of myself as a generally emotionally facile person. I can... I can empathize with sadness. I can feel sad. I can feel. But when that happened, it just like disorganized my entire emotional infrastructure. And I suddenly realized that there was a the power in feeling what that, that whole range of emotion was. Not because and not because I was able to commit to it, because I had no control over it. It was just what I was feeling. I was feeling I, and I was like, wow, is that what people mean when they're emotional? Like they feel this. That's kind of out of controlness. And so I think I resisted the temptation to manage it and I was I was more curious about it when I could be and I just in some way deeply trusted that it would go on until it wouldn't go on and I think when you when you let emotions do that you're less interested in managing them and managing them means allowing them as well, You know, it's like if you're managing children, you wouldn't just say, you know, sit there, don't go anywhere, don't play, don't run. Like there's a certain amount of allowing and then a certain amount of restraining. And I think when we talk about resilience, sometimes we're too heavy handed with that. Like, you know, I'm going to be fine. Like, stop crying. Don't do this. Like, You know, I'd see things and suddenly I'd be like, oh my God, I never used to be this kind of person. Like I was never... The kind of person who would just like cry and a dime. This is kind of weird. It's interesting to evolve in that way. And so I think resilience is sometimes a little bit too harshly applied as a as a, as a learned skill. Mm-hmm. But there's also anti-fragility, you know, Nassim Taleb's whole yeah. idea that it's not just about bouncing back from adversity, but also about using that adversity as a tailwind. Mm-hmm. Uh, and certainly I do think, In I, I don't think I tried to do this, but I do think that there were a lot of, Disorganizing advantages to what I would identify as a sad event in my life when my mother died, because it was it was disorganizing, but it also allowed me to reorganize myself in a way that I don't think I could have
2: done cognitively. It's like identity.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's what I think. Uh, the reason people uh, like I think the the the, the self scrambling effects of psychedelics is that psychedelics get right in there and scramble the self circuits, uh, probably in a way that's different. i mean, right. it reminds if somebody
2: studied that against grief, for Increases brain mm-hmm. entropy, which is the number of possible states you can be in. You know, a lot of these things are labeled as crazy. I think our society has pathologized sort of madness. And of course, it can be very generative, but it can also unleash the dark, destructive forces. Yeah, and I agree, resilience can sort of be overused, grit, you know. I don't like grit, you know. Uh
1: yeah, sort of a lot to put on someone who uh, maybe doesn't want to be resilient.
2: Can I ask you, Srini, viewers, listeners rather, you know, to that point, you know, when 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 we've when we've gotten together, quite often I've noticed that people around you will comment on your clothing. Most recently you were wearing an enormous, um, amazing, I don't know where you got it, Danish or Siberian. Black ermine hat. The ladies next to us, and at one time at the plaza, you were wearing these cow forearm braces, cowskin, and the lady next. You know, I would like to ask you about clothing and your relationship with clothing, if that's okay. How much time do you have? <laughs> We have enough time. <laughs> so I, uh,
0: I love experimenting with clothing, and I think one of the things about clothing that's interesting is that it's it's perceptual, initially, so and it's controllable in a certain way, and it allows you to connect the inside with the outside in a particular way. In fact, I just recently designed a fashion show that's based on brain science that I think I'm on the verge of potentially producing because I'm interested in connecting the inside with the outside. The in general I just like clothing in general. I, I like entertainment and I like things that I like and I like things that make me feel better if I acquire them. So I there's a very that's there's that very simple thing about acquiring an item of clothing that I like. But I think uh to the extent that I express myself in clothing, I think I, I take that I take the expression of myself as a certain kind of luxury to be able to experiment with myself. Like, I, you know, this, in the Zoom time, for example, I, I will often dress up if, if I've, even if I have no meetings, just so I can see what I feel like in particular clothing. So for me, I think clothing offers uh, an avenue for experimentation and self-discovery. And I think it also emphasizes it challenges you about what you want to express from the inside. You know, on that particular day, I was very happy to have the big hat because it was freezing cold outside. So I I think it definitely, I don't think I chose it. I have chosen uh, fashion statements that are uncomfortable before, but I, that in that instance, I chose it because it was comfortable. But the, it, it intrigues me how how the outside and the inside are connected and there are all these dots that have not joined you know things like the connection between the skin and the brain the connection between the gut and the brain between the gut and the skin and mm-hmm. where bacteria reside and so i think there are a lot of loose associations as well
2: well this i'm sorry this, the skin and the gut are one contiguous surface people are yeah. top topologically we're donuts and they
0: both i mean i think the skin has like i think the second largest number of bacteria um, on it compared to the gut so I at, at any case what I can say is they both share a lot of uh similar things that like to live on them and in them
2: right but what I mean is like the inside of the gut and the outside of the skin yes actually contain the body because the inside of of your mouth and your gut is actually outside of your body well I have so
0: many things to say about that but I'm going to restrain myself you know because the I think in embryology, invagination mm-hmm. as a construct is such a... Uh, I think it's one of the things that really ends up confusing us about the relationship between our bodies and the outside. Inside and outside, sub- yeah. And suddenly, like, these things split up, and you've got a tube within a tube.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, and, you know, so what mucosa is... And there's a lot to say here, but... I. Well, <laughs> Well, it seemed like you were going there. I'm I just confident. mean mathematically, dude.
2: <laughs> okay.
0: I'm willing to accept that.
2: <laughs> Not that I have any choice. Really. Yeah. Well, I'm sure it's fascinating because um, people have a really interesting relationship with how they present themselves. <laughs> and a lot of people are, um, it's 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 uniquely interesting in, in the animal kingdom, right? Like we display things visually.
1: Mm-hmm. But um, I... Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I was gonna say but I think particularly now what you said about um, dressing up even if you don't have a meeting is probably good practice because this has gone on so much longer than anyone thought and sometimes I look at my closet and feel a little sad. It doesn't stop me from wearing anything other than sweatpants but <laughs>
2: right.
1: but I uh, imagine what it might feel like to just put on different clothes and remember a different time.
0: because um, yeah, there's a certain theater also to living. Right? I mean, the whole Shakespeare and all the world's a stage, I mean, whether we're dressing up for that stage or not, uh, it's very hard to be exactly who you are. So sometimes you find yourself in these, in the, in the masquerade, you, you find yourself on the stage wearing these items of clothing that are allowing you to feel something completely unrelated to them as well. <laughs>
2: Yeah, you can change your identity. And I, I think I remember you saying or reading something you wrote about imagining you're someone else in a positive way. And that can give you a lot more options. But I'm wondering sort of how you think about desire then and how people express desire, because I think along the lines of what you were saying in our culture, people are very wonky weird about how we deal with desire you know we can we can be incredibly libidinous and unrestrained and then turn around in a second and just repress everything and you know the 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 movies and the shows we like to watch are just incredibly off the hook you know i just started watching westworld and it's completely lush and unrestrained but of course it's confined to this little rectangle
0: yeah desire is of great interest to me uh, both experientially and psychologically. It's one of those states of being that can pro- provide immense satisfaction and guilt. And and the fact that we're constantly riding this wave, making sure we're staying within the satisfaction realm and not spilling over into the guilt realm. And I think people feel guilty because of the intensity of their desires. And a lot of times the burnout that I see is a burnout from not expressing the fullness of desire. As opposed to needing to relax more, not being exhausted, I think people are exhausted about not being themselves. That's really what causes burnout. And I think desire and the taming of desire is a, is a culprit that is is part of the burnout that I that I see. I, there's something very, I think there's something very frightening about desire to people who do not want to be desired. I mean, I I think you understand that, Grant. It's sort of it's a it's there's a there's a way in which i think a lot of people want to be desired from afar but if you're desired from up close it creates it activates all these fantasies of being consumed and uh, and so people are afraid of wanting to consume others and also being consumed
2: well it's Uh, different to be afraid of being consumed if you've already been consumed at some point though i I wonder if if farah has anything to add just you know, I'm close,
1: you know. really holding myself back do uh, that yeah you know, but um, I think it, it's a very interesting topic and particularly for women because desire whether it's erotic or whether it's uh, any other type of ambition intellectual or financial you know has been a really taboo I think it's one of the last taboos in in a way and trying to reconcile the guilt over not being fully happy with what we have and wanting something more, Um, but that's also part of human nature.
2: But, But do you think feminine desire is more taboo than
1: masculine desire? in a way? Or I wasn't yeah, sure. Yeah, I do. Because I think that it's seen as something that is very powerful, very dangerous in and and that we're still learning. And I think this is what's happened, you know, throughout within with the Me Too movement, that how do you wield that, right? It seems like this, this sort of uncontrollable uh, beast, really. And so I do think that women are taught from a very young age to rein it in, right? And that women that are too open with their desires, well they have names right and that so i i think we're sort of on the precipice of being able to manage our own feelings our own collective feelings about uh femininity and and women as leaders like a
2: new vice president you know yeah and and people of color but uh, i wonder if men have womb envy you know because women (laughs) can create life i do think that there's uh one of the
0: unconscious uh, factors and sometimes conscious factors that determines the restraint for women is this this burden of having to carry the burden of sexual desire should they have to carry a child because it's not mm-hmm. like the man's gonna be running around for nine months carrying a baby and doing that. So I think there is this, this restraint around that has to do with, with that as well.
2: Controlling production, you know, almost in a Marxist sense
0: yeah, I think there are different kinds of, I'm not sure that it's more or less in terms of the differences. I think I think sometimes there are some stereotypes, for example, where men will express their desire openly in terms of wanting to have sex and women might respond with, can you make love to me and not just want to have sex? And, the, and men are like, what, express my actual desire? No, like, I'm just going to like express my sexual desire. And so there's that stereotype, which I think is, so I think that desire is a point of suffering for for men and for women, and and I think, you know, one of the things I'm wanting to do this year as well is, um, in terms of creating a counter-narrative, I feel like there are so many advantages to highlighting uh, where there are actual vulnerabilities in the world, you know, like where, like with race, with gender, with socioeconomic conditions, but I also feel like there's this unmonitored polarization that is beginning to infect our society, where Somehow, uh, if you continue this narrative between men and women, there's likely to be distancing, or between different races there's likely to be distancing. And I want to really make sure that while we're focusing on what the justice is, there's certainly obvious things, you know, for example, I think you know women need according to the World economic Forum, some absurd amount of time to catch up with pay with men.' Just like you know that, I think that can be fixed easily. so I think you should focus on. Those kinds of things you can focus on mm-hmm. easily, but I still think that I'm not in favor of anything that uh, perpetuates uh, hatred or or polarization. You're um, all about love. I am, and I'm I'm actually I'm not joking. Book. Yeah, <laughs> no, I mean I think love is really important, and I I think that I don't want to really overindulge in the conversation of you know guys at the bar being like oh those women women being like but guys I hate you know like I <laughs> I think there's like You can do that selectively to the point that it's realistic, but I don't want that to be the all-engulfing narrative of my life because I think people are just stupendously different and amazing. And there is a way in which it doesn't have to be like a cognitive inclusion of the other, um, but a little bit like the delicious taste of hot and sour soup. Like I think differences don't have to be debated. I think there's an art that can begin to embrace what differences are. Nicely said.
1: Yeah, beautiful. On that note, um, if people want to hear more about what you're up to, where can they find you? Where can they find your book? Um, you can find
0: me on drsreenipillay.com. Okay. E R S R I N I P I L L A Y.com or on nbgcorporate.com, where I do my corporate work, Neural business group. So, business group. The yeah, word neuro and the business and group, all one word. And you can find me on Facebook, on Twitter, on LinkedIn, and on Instagram. I like sharing my thoughts from time to time and love hearing from others. You
2: things. have some amazing poetry on medium.com as well. I've been, yeah, because of what I was
0: saying about living in a dataless existence, I thought I would start uh, just writing more poetry online. Mm, wonderful.
1: Thank you. Okay, thanks so much. Thanks for talking with us today. This was amazing.
2: One disclaimer, this podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of psychiatry or any type of medicine. It's not a substitute for professional and individual treatment services and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. If you feel that you may be in crisis, please don't delay in securing mental health treatment.